revelation in the form of the scriptures. May we never take it for granted, Father. And now I pray that God the Holy Spirit would teach us from your word tonight. And we'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Put your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy <coughs> chapter 3. It's been a number of weeks since we've been in this book. 1 Timothy is Paul's message to this young uh, associate of his in teaching him uh, how one ought to behave in the household of God. And as he proceeds from his instructions concerning worship in the church to lay out qualifications now for leaders, uh, deacons and elders particularly, uh, in the church. He does so so that Timothy, who was himself not an, an apostle in the sense that Paul was, there is a sense that, Peter, that uh, Timothy was an apostle, he wasn't functioning as an elder so much in the church at Ephesus, but he was Paul's representative there, and it would be his responsibility to appoint elders in that church. And so Paul is going to give him a list of qualifications that are not a future goal. It's very important. We'll start off with that information. There, these, these qualifications that we'll study not just this week and next week are not some future ideal, but they should be a present reality in those who, are, who occupy uh, these offices. This is perhaps, uh, to be up front with you, the most controversial uh, portion of the pastoral epistles. It certainly evokes probably the most emotion and emotional responses when these issues are spoken of. And as such, I ask for, the next, over the next few weeks, your patience, your poise, and most of all, for your objectivity as we move forward in this study. You will need that. Don't check it at the door, please. Most believers have formed opinions about the qualifications of the office of elder. And quite frankly, many of those opinions have been formed based upon a superficial understanding of the text. Perhaps this is what you've always understood. Perhaps this is what a pastor early on in your life taught you. And if you were to have to defend your view about a particular aspect of your understanding of the pastoral, elder, uh, bishop qualifications, you might not be able to do it. After this is over, I hope that you would at least be able to go to the Scriptures and say, well, this is why I believe what it is that I believe. This is a very emotional text for many people. People have very strong feelings about it. I understand that ahead of time. And one of my duties at the College of Biblical Studies, or one of the classes that I teach on a fairly regular basis, is called Ecclesiology, the study of the church. And so I know that people have strong opinions about these issues. Uh, so tonight, and for the next couple of weeks, let's look and see what the text says. Even then, even after we look at what the text says, I'm not naive enough to think that there will be a consensus about some of the issues. I understand that. Uh, and as, as I have taught this many times, I've taught it in uh, Ukraine and, and taught it here as well. Uh, uh, I'm a realist, and I've heard just about every possible view on some of these issues, defended some articulately, some not so articulately, uh, some really uh, wise views, and some that are just plain ridiculous. But let's move forward with some objectivity in this text and see what we can do. Now, I am not saying that there's not a correct view. I'm not saying that at all. There is a right view and a wrong view. I'm just saying that it is difficult for, for that view to be derived from some of these phrases that the Apostle Paul uses. 
someday I think we'll have a better understanding. And, and sometimes it takes a while for the, in the history of doctrine as doctrines develop to come up with consensus in the Christian community. It took almost 300 years to come up with a real strong consensus about the person of Jesus Christ at the Council of Nicaea 325. So some of these things have been hashed out for many, many uh, centuries, and we're not going to settle it tonight. I just ask that you be kind and courteous. In other words, I'm tired of arguing about it. <laughs> that, that's, that, that whole introduction was to tell you that. Uh, I, I argue about this all the time at CBS, and, and I'm going to tell you ahead of time, there's going to be, I'm not changing everybody's mind about some of these qualifications. I just ask you to listen objectively. Is that fair enough? And then you can, um, you're going to hold to what you want to hold anyway. Um, there are good, solid, competent, biblical scholars who hold diverging views on much of what we'll talk about over the next couple of weeks. That's, and all I'm saying is let's have some objectivity and realize there are reasons why within the text that one man may hold this, another man may hold a slightly uh, different view. Let's look at the text itself. It is a trustworthy statement. Well, what Paul does here is he cites another saying that was well known in the early church. He had done that back in verse 15 of chapter 1 where he said, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I'm foremost of all. That was a trustworthy statement that Paul draws from the Christian culture at the time and he makes a point of it. Now he does that again in chapter 3 verse 1. He says it's a trustworthy statement. And now this time it's about ecclesiology. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. You know, a person can aspire to hold an office, and particularly office within the church, out of either good motives or bad motives. Uh, the trustworthy statement that Paul cited here assumes good motives. The desire to do a worthy work. N not a desire to, be, uh, to hold the office of elder, pastor, or bishop so that it can do something for them, but so they can do something for someone else. So Paul is assuming good motives. Uh, motivation here. The position of overseer is such a significant matter, it's such a noble assignment, uh, and it should indeed be the kind of task that someone should aspire to. So there's, so what Paul is doing here is not so much talking about the aspiration, but rather the nobility of the office itself. Now there are three terms that the New Testament uses for what appear to be the same office. They're the terms uh, uh, bishop, the term elder, and the term pastor. Now, I want to stress that these three terms are not synonymous. Okay? They're, they're three separate terms, but they are used somewhat inter interchangeably. Particularly the term elder and bishop are used interchangeably. And then in 1 Peter 5, we see Peter, uh, uh, for the world it looks as though, he uses the term elder and pastor interchangeably. So that's why these terms have been used interchangeably by theologians for centuries. Now the three terms are worth noting. The, the term that's here is the, actually the female form of a, of a noun that's, that's pronounced this way, episkopos. And, and we have a denomination that's come out of this noun. You, you, might, you might could hear it in that, episkopos, where we get the Episcopal uh, uh, denomination from. Not, not the denomination from this word, but that's where they get the, the name of the denomination from. That's the, that is the Greek term for one who is a, a bishop or an overseer. And in this particular aspect of the office, administration is typically involved. An, an episkopos, or, uh, 
would, would have been one who would manage a large estate for someone else. You know, there, there may be, a, to put it in our terms, maybe a big ranch. And, and the, the, this person would have been in charge of that big ranch, although he would not have owned the ranch, typically. He would have been in charge of it. And so when we want to stress the administration part of this office, we would probably use the term bishop. The term presbyteros is the term that we use for the English word elder. Presbyteros. Can you hear a, a denomination out of that? That Presbyterian. And that's, what's, that's where we get that term from. Uh, a presbyteros was one who was mature, not necessarily just in age, but mature in the faith. And an elder was someone who provided spiritual leadership and guidance. It would be like this. It would, it would be like if you had a trusted grandfather. When you needed advice on a particular personal issue for yourself, and you went and sat down with him next to him on the couch one evening and said, Papa, I need to talk to you. And then you would, you would value that, that wisdom, particularly in the term elder, the spiritual wisdom that would come from that, and it would also imply leadership. The third term is poimain. A poimain was a shepherd, and that's where we get the idea or the concept of a pastor from. And in the book of Ephesians, there's a fairly decent argument. I, I personally hold to it. Not everybody does. That, that the word didaskalos, or teacher, goes along with that in, in almost a hyphenated sense, pastor-teacher. Now, all pastors must be teachers. But not all teachers must be pastors. You understand the difference? There is a gift of teaching uh, that, is, that is separate and distinct from the gift of pastoring and teaching. But well, as we'll see tonight, an elder must be apt to teach or able to teach. So in my view, there's no such thing as an elder in a church who cannot teach. Now, there may be elders in churches that don't teach, but that's not the role that they've been assigned. But they have to be able to teach, otherwise they are not qualified as an elder specifically. So you'll see that while these three terms, elder, pastor, and bishop, again, they are not synonymous terms. They, they, they all... They all emphasize different aspects of what, in my view, is the same office. Uh, they are used interchangeably. You, you see the distinction that I'm drawing. The, the term episkopos or, or bishop is going to emphasize the administrative oversight. Elder is going to emphasize spiritual oversight. And the term pastor is going to emphasize the care and the tenderness and the shepherding of the flock. And they are, again, not synonymous but used somewhat interchangeably um, as we as we move forward in the verse it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer now in this particular office uh, we'll see in in Titus as a similar list is given it's it's not just overseer but elder as well um, and so we see that it's a fine work that is uh, desired to do that is the person may desire to do um, leadership in my, in my view, leadership can make or break a ministry. Church leaders must first and foremost in their minds recognize their own weaknesses and their own inability to perform God's work apart from God's enablement. You see, church leadership is not necessarily about talent. It's about giftedness. It's, it's two different things. 
someone be, may be an awesome public speaker in a, in a, say, political setting or a business setting. That doesn't mean that they have the gift of pastoring and teaching or the gift of uh, being an elder or a bishop. And technically speaking, there's, there's an office and there's a gift, but that's not my purpose to go into the difference in those tonight. But leadership can make or break a ministry. Paul Borthwick, who was with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, I believe rightly said in his text, leading the way, he said, We need leaders who cannot be bought, whose word is their promise, who put character above wealth, who possess opinions and the will, who are larger than their vocations, who do not hesitate to take chances, who will not lose their individuality in a crowd, who will be honest in the small things as well as in the great things, who will make no compromise with wrong, whose ambitions are not confined to their own selfish desires, who will not do something just because everyone else is doing it, who are true to their friends, through good report and evil report, in adversity and in prosperity, who do not believe that shrewdness, cunning, cunningness, and hard-headedness are the best qualities for winning success, who are not ashamed or afraid to stand for the truth when it's unpopular, who can say no with emphasis, although the rest of the world says yes. We need leaders like that in our churches. Now, before we move on to the second verse, which begins the description of the present reality that should, that should be the character of a leader in the church, and in case you, you, I, tend, I lose you from here on out, please at least listen to this part. The, the qualification list is, is not a list that, that in any way whatsoever ascribes perfection to the pastor, teacher, bishop, elder. There's only one perfect person that's ever lived. So, so those who are looking for perfection in pastoral leadership are going to be looking a long time. In fact, you're going to be looking until the millennium when Jesus Christ is back on earth leading in that way. Uh, God doesn't expect perfection, but he does expect consistency in character. And so, but, but before we do that, let's, let's first address the issue of the appropriate number of elders in a local church. And I'm quite aware that this is a hot-button issue as well, so I'd like for you just to hear me out if you would. Plurality of elders is allowed for in the New Testament, but not prescribed. It is allowed for, but it is not prescribed. There certainly seems to have been more than one elder in some of the churches. For example, in Acts 20, verse 17, we see more than one elder. In Philippians chapter 1, it's, the elders are addressed, or bishops are addressed in the plural there. But not necessarily in all churches. Churches were small in the first century and generally met in people's homes. There were multiple elders in the city of Ephesus, for example. That cannot be denied. But it's also very likely that there were multiple church homes in the city of Ephesus, just like there were in the city of Rome. We recently studied the epistle to the Romans, and as Harold Honer, the New Testament scholar, pointed out, there were, there were likely at least five home churches in the city of Rome, and we get that from chapter 16. In my view, many young and small churches make a colossal mistake early on in thinking that they are required to have more than one elder. I've, I've seen churches of eight 
insist that there be more than one elder in that church. This leads, in my view, to pressure to appoint or recognize a man as an elder who is unqualified for the position. And unqualified leadership, listen, unqualified leadership will kill a church. I did it early on in our church. I don't mind telling you that now. Early on in the church, we had about eight people. I appointed uh, at least, well, not at least, I appointed one man in a position of leadership that had no business whatsoever being in that position, but I felt I needed a certain number of men to help serve and lead with me. And it was my mistake, and I paid for it. I paid for it with a lot of really rowdy deacons meetings and some, some really hard feelings that, that came forth. It wasn't his fault. It was my fault. Because I jumped the gun and, and forced a certain number of leaders on a small group of people. Now, granted, the larger the church, the more likely it is God will bring a, a plurality of elders to a church. There has been a movement in modern evangelicalism in recent decades toward multiple elders, in large part because abuses were observed in some churches that were led by a strong pastor. Not, in, not entirely. For example, the Presbyterian denomination didn't do it that way. That was, that was the way their church government had always functioned. But particularly in Bible churches, we saw a movement toward uh, plurality of elders. And it, if you speak to some of the ones that were pushing that movement, it was because they noticed abuses. But upon closer evaluation, as time has passed, some of the abuses, it is true, were real. But some were not. Some were imagined on the part of worshipers who did not get their way with regard to a particular issue. And so therefore, they went right straight after the pastor, not having all the facts. There have been times, even in our own church, there have been times when a pastor possessed sensitive and confidential information that others did not possess and had to make decisions based upon that information without having the liberty to explain fully why a decision was made because the confidence would have been violated. As time passed, what in the beginning might have looked like a bad or selfish decision turned out to be the right one many times. Now, I do not say this to, ex to excuse any real abuse that has taken place. And there have been real abuses in churches. I'm not saying that. I state it simply to encourage prudence at times when the knee-jerk reaction might be to rush in, as Pope said, where angels fear to tread. Take your time. Take a deep breath. Understand that sometimes people in leadership have more information than you do about a particular situation. Try something novel. Try trusting your leadership until they give you a solid reason not to. Now, another reason that's often put forth for the necessity of plurality of elders in a local church, and I'm talking about apart from biblical reasons. There are those that hold the plurality of elders because they see passages like the Acts 20 passage, they see passages like the Philippians passage, and, and they have biblical reasons. But there are others that hold the plurality of elders for what I consider non-biblical reasons. This is the second one. Because they would say that it spreads out authority and allows the Holy Spirit to work through more than just one man. In theory, this is appealing, 
But in practice, what happens just as often is the function and performance of sinful natures is simply multiplied. I don't know where we ever got the idea that the Holy Spirit was, was obligated to work through five people rather than one. Is the Holy Spirit not omnipotent? Yes, the Holy Spirit could work through five people. Second Baptist has, in my understanding, over a hundred pastors on staff. And I assume that the Holy Spirit works through all of them. They also have 20,000 members. I mean, pound for pound, I think they have less pastors than we do per, per person. You see, but, but yes, the Holy Spirit can work through, the Holy Spirit can work through a multitude of people. But where does it ever say the Holy Spirit can't work through one? You see, that's a false, it's, it's a false premise. It, it falls apart logically. So, so the, the, the premise is faulty to begin with. Just as many abuses and mistakes have taken place in churches with multiple elders as have when there is a single elder. I'll say that again because I know some of your or hackles are rising right now, but that's okay. You're, you're certainly entitled to a different opinion, but just as many abuses and mistakes have taken place in churches with multiple elders as have when there is a single elder. I trust that you will not put me in a position of giving you specific examples of this. I could, but that's not my point tonight. My, my place tonight is not to, to, to be critical. My, my place tonight is to educate. The point is this. It's not so much how many elders are present in a church that is as important as the character of the elders that lead in a particular church. I'd rather have one elder with strong character and maturity than five or ten elders with questionable character or maturity, even if they're good businessmen. It's amazing to me how many people get appointed elders because they have large bank accounts. And I've looked through the list here, and I can't see that as one of the qualifications. You wonder why churches have problems. We've got to be careful in who exercises leadership in a local church. At Pine Valley, our church government is what is called a modified form of a congregational government with a single elder and a board of deacons. We have a church constitution that governs our administrative decision-making process, and it has worked well over the first 12 years. At least in my view it has. Maybe somebody else might disagree. But I believe that it's worked well in the first 12 years of our existence the congregation here at Pine Valley has the ability to fire the pastor at any time it chooses. In that sense, our congregation exercises the final oversight. Now, not the ultimate oversight. The ultimate oversight is exercised by Jesus Christ. He can fire me at any point, too, a lot easier than you can. But the congregation, in a congregational form, exercises the final Oversight. Now, to those of you that grew up in the Baptist tradition, this is nothing new. That, that's a typical Baptist form of government. To those who grow up, and I know there are many, in a more Presbyterian form of government, that is something new. Um, but watch, if, if confidence is lost in the leadership of a church, my plea to you is that you should appoint new leadership. But do not act as a millstone around the neck of those in ministry. That's not the answer. 
If you're not happy with leadership, throw the pastor out and get new leadership. But don't make it your goal in life to make every day miserable for those who are in that position in a church. And although some act as if it does exist, that spiritual gift doesn't exist. Making life miserable for pastoral or or elder leadership. Contrarianism might be a fine investment strategy. But it gets old really quick when it comes to dealing with folks in churches. I want you to be very, very careful here. And I have, even though I've been using some humor, I have tried to choose my words very carefully as I wrote this sermon out. There's a fine line. I just told you that you're the the final oversight in this church as the congregation, those who are members anyway. There's a fine line between oversight and encumbrance. Legitimate oversight will result in blessing. Encumbrance will result in discipline. So, so when, you, when you exercise final oversight as a congregation, just make sure you're walking in fellowship with God when you do it, and that your ultimate goal is for the glory of God, not some selfish motivation. And that you're not trying to, to provide a, a weight. Sometimes pastors feel like, I'm not talking about myself, but sometimes some of my friends talk about, it's like the congregation has placed cement boots on them and told them to run a 40-yard dash. Well, that's just plain sinful. Don't do that. If, if you don't respect the pastor any more than that, get a new one. But let leadership lead. <laughs> that's the point. Now, we have men in our congregation that I consider elders, men who have solid character and are mature in the faith. And often I seek their advice on spiritual matters or scriptural matters or a, a particular aspect of a, of a, of a, a Greek verb or a, a Hebrew noun or how to handle a particular situation when it comes to spiritual things in a church. We have men in our church better that way, but they don't occupy, in our form of government, a a specific official position. But then the New Testament says little, if anything, about the idea of an elder board. That's, That's something that we've organized. So I make no apology for that. Now, what I'd like to do in the time that we have left tonight is give you a summary of the qualifications for elder, pastor, bishop. Now, this summary is going to come not just from 1 Timothy chapter 3, but also from Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. Because if we put these two together, as far as our summary tonight, it'll give us at least 22 characteristics and qualifications, which may be grouped into four categories. Personal character, public testimony, family, and ministry. Personal character, public testimony family, and ministry. And I know many of you are going to write these down. What I'll do is, if you would prefer, next week, I'll, I'll make a copy of these and I'll just bring them to you. I intended to do that and time got away from me today. So some of these will naturally overlap. That is, any family failure will, for example, affect one's ministry or personal qualifications. So these are not rigid categories, but... 
but they are as follows. And one more time I would, would stress, God's not looking for perfection in a pastor. He's looking for consistency in a pastor. Um, I know churches that are looking for pastors. There's, there's three that have come to my attention this week, and, I, and they, they want help in trying to find people that will, will fit some of these positions. And, I, and I'm serious. I, I look at what they want, and um, Dwight Pentecost couldn't fill that position. You know, the Apostle Paul would have trouble. You know, so, I mean, because they're looking for perfection rather than something that's real. To be a pastor doesn't mean that you lived, you've lived a sinless life. Do I need to admit that now? I mean, I will. If, if, if I don't, some of my friends have known me a long time will be happy to get up and admit it for me, <laughs> you know. But, but there needs to be some sort of consistency. And let's, let's consider these qualifications as a group. And then we'll talk about one or two of them more specifically in depth next, next week. The personal qualifications. And these are in no particular order, but the pastor must be what the Greek text calls temperate. And this means avoiding extremes. This is an occupational hazard because many times pastors are, are very passionate in their views, and sometimes people will come in and say, do you know what's happening over there? <laughs> and then the pastor says, no, I don't know what's happening. What are they doing? Well, this is what they're doing, and you charge in, you run in, and, and you, you make a big mess of stuff. You've got to be fairly level-headed. A pastor should be prudent, showing good judgment, and exercising common sense. The third qualification under what I'm calling personal qualifications is the pastor must not be addicted to wine, which means he must not abuse wine, which also would say that it doesn't say you, you can't have a glass of wine. It just says you're not supposed to be addicted to it. Now, if you happen to teach or, or attend a, a, an institution where that's their rule, then that's their rule, and that's what you do. Uh, and... Um, I, I'm not a big wine drinker because I just don't like the taste. If, if wine tasted like Dr. Pepper, I'd probably have to look at this one a little bit more. But, but it doesn't. It just, it just has a pungent taste as far as I'm concerned, and, and I'd just rather drink the grape juice. But the point is you can't be addicted to wine. You can't be addicted to cocaine or marijuana or Percodan or, or uh, I forget what the name of some of the other ones are that people get addicted to. You, you can't have that ruling your life. You see, whether it's alcohol or whether it's painkillers, prescription or otherwise. A pastor should not be pugnacious, which means a pastor should not have a violent temper. I, I said there's, this shouldn't be understood as perfection, but uh, cut me some slack. <laughs> the, the, the pastor should be gentle. In contrast to pugnacious, I'm a lot better than I used to be. I mean, I really am. My mom would get up here and tell you that if, 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 if I need her to. Don't do that, but I'll, <laughs> she could tell you that. A pastor should be patient and considerate. The sixth personal qualification is the pastor should be uncontentious, which, again, is, bleeds over a little bit into the not pugnacious. Being peaceful, at, at, at the core, anyway. It should be free from the love of money, the seventh qualification. Now, some some churches have have uh, misread that. And they have said the pastor should be free of money. <laughs> and uh, that's not what it says. It says free of the love of money. I had a close friend, and, uh, and Will's, Will's friend as well, and I can say his name now because he's long past that ministry, but his name's Scott Saunders. Remember Scott and Tina? You all do? 
And Scott went out to a church in Glide, Oregon, and dealt with an elder board out there that thought that that read that he should be free of money, and, and put him through some of the most tortuous things that I've ever heard a pastor be put through. And uh, they ended up having to borrow the money when they left town from his dad for the U-Haul to get out of there to get to San Francisco. And as at least as of about a year and a half ago, Scott was not in the ministry anymore. Breaks my heart because he was a good expositor. He was a fine man and a fine expositor. But they just pounded him, and they pounded him. over. They, they kept him as poor as they could possibly keep him. He couldn't go to a movie with Tina uh, if he had wanted to. He, and we were in close contact through that whole period, so I really felt for him. The eighth uh, personal qualification, the pastor should not be a novice, meaning that the pastor should have been saved long enough to develop some sense of spiritual maturity and wisdom. Now, this happens a lot in Texas, particularly in, in parts of Texas, like in the East Texas area, no offense. But, but it'll happen there that a man will get saved, and then they immediately say, well, what do you want to do? And then they'll, in the church, a little country church, he says, well, I think I want to be the pastor. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. I mean, I've, I've, I could give you data if you'd like. And then they say, well, okay. You know, we had one such man called me up one day. Actually, a friend of his called me up, and I talked to him, and that's the position he, saw, he took. I said, I think you're, you're getting a little bit ahead of yourself, but if that's what you're insisting on, I'll talk with you. I sent him some books. I sent him the Bible Knowledge Commentary to at least get started and recommended he come down to CBS and start taking some classes, which he... Uh, which he did until he uh, got uh, cancer and was not able to do that. Uh, the pastor should not be self-willed. Now, this doesn't mean that the pastor shouldn't have a will. But it means that the pastor should have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had. Not my will, but thy will be done. And the pastor's got to, as best as God will lead him, figure out what he feels like God's will is for a church, either the pastor or the pastor's. If it's, a, if it's a situation where there's more than one. They have to prayerfully consider what God's will for that church is, and then they've got to be strong enough to stick with it. But they can't be self-willed. It's not, it can't just be about them. The tenth qualification is not quick-tempered, which is not easily angered. The eleventh is loving what is good, being loyal to moral and ethical values. Now, there are some people that love what is evil. Let I me mean, just face it. There are some people that love the dark side, and that can't be a pastor. Now, some pastors have done this, and they can go years and years and fool people. But typically, it always comes out. And we've had some tragic examples in Houston and nearby communities where some pastors of some very well-known and large churches have been found to have had 10-year affairs or 5-year affairs. And it, it really rocked those churches for a while, but... But those churches will survive because that church didn't belong to the pastor. It belonged to God himself. And so um, uh, you have to love what is good. You have to be fair and honest. That's the 12th characteristic. The 13th one is, is the term devout, being devoted to God in worship. you got to love what you do. Howard Hendricks said one time that if you can find anything else in life whereby you get fulfillment, then don't go into the ministry. Now, at first I didn't understand that, but now I do. You see, and that doesn't mean that other things in life don't fulfill people. But for me personally, I had fulfillment in my previous profession. I enjoyed it a lot. But, but it wasn't the ultimate fulfillment that I was seeking. So a person needs to be totally devoted 
in their worship to God. They would do it no matter what the circumstance. They do it wherever God sends. And 14th, under this one, under personal qualifications, is self-control. Being able to control oneself under adverse or tempting, circum, uh, tempting circumstances. Chuck Swindoll used to talk about this a lot, Dallas Seminary. Uh, Chuck was well-known. I mean, he's, I think, a million people a day, something like that, listen to his radio program. And as such, the more well-known you are, the more you set yourself up for criticism. And sometimes people criticize pastors acting like they're some sort of figure and not a person. And, and as though that pastor's not going to hear that criticism. And Chuck's been criticized roundly. Some of it may be valid, but a lot of it's not. And he, I remember at a chapel message, he, he spoke on this particular qualification. You have to be self-controlled. And you've got to be able to control yourself even when people are talking trash about you. Because you know for whom you work. And if he's satisfied with you, it's okay. If he's not, you're in big trouble. But if he's satisfied, you're okay. Now, there are public qualifications, too. Let me move a little quicker through these so we can finish in, in some uh, decency in time. A pastor needs to be above reproach. Now, this is the very first one that's mentioned. This doesn't mean sinless. But it does mean having no questionable conduct that would bring legitimate accusations. I said legitimate accusations. People can accuse you of anything anytime they want to. But it needs to. But you need to live such a life as if someone was to say, you know, hey, I I heard I heard Bumgardner is an is a drug addict alcoholic. I would hope that most people in our congregation would say, I know Bruce better than that. He, he hardly drinks at all. That, that, that can't be true. You see what I mean? You, you have to have that kind of reputation where people aren't just going to believe the first accusation that comes by. Now, there are people, I'm not talking about ministers necessarily, but there are people that if you were to make an accusation, they're going to say, yeah, I figured that. You know what I mean? But, but you, you, if you're in pastoral leadership, you've got to have the type of reputation where they would at least scratch their head and say, that makes no sense. I'm going to check into that. You, you see what I mean? That's what it means to be above reproach. Hospitable. I'm learning more about hospitality as I go to different countries, and I see how other countries and other cultures issue hospitality. And some, some cultures do it better than we do. But, but a pastor's got to be a people person. You see, a pastor can't just say, I don't like people. I, I like to teach, but I can't stand people. Well, that's not a pastor. That's a teacher. Okay, you, you can be a teacher in a church, but, but the pastor's got to be hospitable. He's got, to, he's got to be willing to sit down and have lunch with somebody, you know, and, and not freak out over the, the possibility. He's got to have a good reputation with those outside the church. Somebody goes to Pine Valley Bible Church, and they say, who pastors that church? They say, Bruce Bumgarner. And I, I would hope that somebody outside the church says, yeah, I used to know him. Decent fellow. Or, or whatever they may be say. But you don't want to say, wow. You, you don't want that. Hopefully. You're having fun with this tonight, aren't you? See, because it's not you for a change. It's me. Now, there are family qualifications. The first family qualification is the husband of one wife. That is pretty self-explanatory, so I don't think I need to say anything else about that. And the second one is, I'm just joking. That's, that's what we'll talk about the entire time next time. But, but with four minutes to go, there's no way I'm going to start that discussion. That is the one that you all, I mean, you're all aware, that's the one that brings out the emotion. That's the one that brings out most of the division. And so, therefore, I'll do my best to unpack it for you next week. And I probably won't unpack it in a way that's going to satisfy everybody. 
Uh, but, but there's great, great uh, divergence of views, even amongst people who are very, very well-versed in the text there. But we'll talk about what that means at our, uh, our, the best I can do with what that means in our class next week. Manages his own household well, which means being a spiritual leader of his family. Now, there's a, I'll joke an aside here. There's, a, there's a, an axiom about pastor's kids. And I've talked with other pastors, and I want to commend you. I, I really appreciate you very much. Nobody has ever messed with my kids, with one exception. They don't go here anymore. But nobody has really ever messed with my kids the whole time that I've been a minister at this church. I appreciate that so much. You've let them grow up. Pastor's children and pastor, a pastor's spouse grows up in a fishbowl. And, uh, and I know how it is because I've attended other churches before where the pastor would tell a joke and I'd, my, my eyes would dart over to the pastor's wife to see if she was laughing, you know. You know and sometimes she would be and sometimes she wouldn't be, you know. So I think, oh, well, that's, that hit home. But, but I appreciate you very much for uh, allowing Cindy, Marcia, Bruce, and David to, to uh, particularly the kids in the sense of growing up, to grow up while they were in a fishbowl, you supported them. And they've turned out pretty good because of that. I mean, not perfect, but but they've they don't have the uh, they don't have the, the rebellious uh, spirit that a lot of people have that grow up in a fishbowl. I appreciate that very much. Uh, a pastor uh, should be the spiritual leader of his family. How can you be the spiritual leader of a church if you're not the spiritual leader of your family? If you don't have the respect of your wife and children, you're not going to be able to have the respect of those that you minister to. The pastor's children should, uh, should live under control, with dignity. They should respect authority. Uh, they should be believers, not accused of dissip- dissipation. And there's, the Greek text is a little dicey here as to whether the children are not abused, accused of dissipation or the pastor is not. Either way, it's valid, but the children have to live under control. And there are, finally, there are ministry qualifications. The first ministry qualifications, you have to be able to teach. That's part of this office. Uh, You have to be able to instruct in doctrine. But you also have to be teachable to be in this particular position. Uh, I had a friend one time told me, asked me, he's an unbeliever, when are you going to finish that book? You know, I said, never, you know, never. You, you, you get in it every day and you absorb more, more truth all the time. You have to be teachable as well as being able to teach. Holding fast the word of truth. Now, now we're getting into some, some ones that I consider so serious. You have to be firm in doctrine, and you cannot compromise what you believe to be the truth. You cannot do it. And it's done often. People compromise what they believe to be the truth to, to get bigger congregations. Listen, a big congregation is not necessarily spiritual. A small congregation is not necessarily spiritual. But whatever the case, you cannot compromise biblical truth. And you have to be able to refute those who contradict biblical truth. That's what Paul's already talked about early in this. We apparently had some Ephesian elders that weren't teaching the truth. Paul's telling Timothy, you've got to get in there and be a man, son. And you've got to be able to contradict them. You have to do it in love. You've got to speak the truth in love. But you, you can't be spineless. You can't be a jellyfish. You've got to be able to stand up and say, no, that's not what the Scriptures say. Or at the very least, you have to stand up and say, that is not my understanding of what the Scriptures say. So you have to be 
able to refute those who contradict, standing against, and stopping false teaching in a church. Now, again, in this particular situation, we haven't had false teaching get moved through our church. I've been very blessed in that way. Maybe little splinters where you just have to say, no, no, we're not going that direction. But all, all in all, we've been, we've been very blessed. And it's kind of like President Bush not bragging about terrorist attacks. You know, as soon as he gets up there and says, watch, we haven't had one since 2001, a big one, then something's going to happen the next day. So I know why he doesn't say that. But so far, we've been extremely blessed in that situation. And I thank you for that, too. Uh, especially those who teach, you're very courteous about coming and asking me. If you're in doubt, this last week someone asked me an hour's, almost an hour's worth of questions about you know, some things that they were going to be teaching in the Sunday school. That's what I'm here for. They were apologizing about taking up my time. That's what I'm here for. And, and if I'm not here, the, Paul Shockley's here, and he'll help you anytime. I can speak for Will Johnson. He'll help you anytime. Fred Stowe will help you anytime. We're, we're here to help you with that. Now, these qualifications that I have summarized tonight clearly emphasize the character of the person rather than simply educational achievements. In order to be able to teach, certainly you have to, in my view, you need to, to be trained. Otherwise, what are you going to teach? But the character is, is emphasized over the ability. In Peter's admonition to elders in 1 Peter chapter 5, speaking about the crown of glory, you know who's going to get the crown of glory there? It's those leaders who prove themselves to be examples to the flock. You see, good teaching is expected. It shouldn't be unusual. That's expected. Those who prove themselves to be examples to the flock, they'll receive that special reward that is there in heaven for those who occupy that office. In summary, the characteristics indicate that the elder is to be unselfish, of good reputation, a good family leader, and able to handle Scripture. Next week, it is my plan to break down one of those, the most controversial, what it means to be the man of one woman or the husband of one wife, and then perhaps another one of these characteristics, depending on how much time we have. Uh, and then we will move on to what uh, the qualifications for deacon are. We can get off me for a change. <laughs> so.